Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So, Vedana, feelings. Last week we started this two and a half part series on feelings. So today I just wanted to move a little bit deeper into the topic. As I joked last week, I believe it seems like every time I open up my mouth, I start a Dharma talk by saying, this is the most important topic in the Dharma. And so what's interesting about feelings is that I've been practicing with feelings a lot this last month. And I keep having the same insight. Wow, this is so important for my practice. So I think it is important that we talk about feelings uh, since we are feeling beings. And I think it's important to to know the subtlety of this and to really see the context in the Dharma because it's a kind of a broad topic and it's a challenging one. It's, it's really challenging on the meditative side. Fairly easy to understand conceptually, but on the practice side, as we talked about last week, feelings are hard to see uh, in the way that the Buddha describes them. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, to have some more context. So we'll go a little deeper today. And then um, next week, I'll release the Generosity podcast. And then when we come back from the holidays, uh, we might have one more sutta study on this topic to give you the actual suttas around this stuff. So that's what's coming up. So let me just ground us just in a couple of things that we talked about last week. So we're on the same page. So feelings, Vedana in Pali, is the second foundation of mindfulness. So we have our body, our feelings, our mind, and then dhammas, which is the spiritual concepts. So we have four foundations of mindfulness, four satipatthanas, and feelings in, in Pali, Vedana, does not refer to emotions, as most of you know. Feelings is the affective tone. It is the hue, if you will, of every moment, right? There is a feeling tone to each present moment experience, which is the foundation for complex emotions. In Western psychology, they do have a term which is close to it, which is affective tone, which I think is the closest to Vedana is that we're going to get with the Dharma. So it's pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant feeling tone of the moment-to-moment experience. The third foundation, which is mind, that's emotions. That's mind states. Anger, lust, greed, hatred. Those are the emotional mind states or mental concomitants. But feelings is just the tone. It's the underlying coloring of the experience. So the reason it's so important, as the Buddha describes, is because between body And mind, we have feelings. So in the West, we often talk about mind-body connection. But in the Dharma, it is body-feeling-mind. That is the order of the contact. So information comes in through the sense doors, touches the body in some way, right, at our senses. And then a feeling tone arises. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then there's a reaction, And that reaction is usually craving and aversion and grasping and clinging and then dukkha, suffering. So feelings are this bridge between the body and the more complex emotional states that humans have. And the Buddha says that the feeling link in the chain, this bridge between body 
and emotions is the best place for us to influence how we experience the present moment. Because if we can find the feeling tone, then we can cut off the suffering before it gets too severe. We can cut off that second arrow from arising. So when we talk about the second arrow, that reactivity, what we're reacting to is in fact the feeling tone. It's after contact, then we have feeling, then there's the reaction. That's where craving and aversion come. Craving and aversion are a response to feeling. So that's the point where the Buddha said we should really focus our mindfulness. So the challenge I have is that it might be the most effective, as the Buddha says, but I personally find it to be very difficult to find. So it might be highly effective, but it's so subtle that I think it's actually one of the more challenging links in the chain to be aware of. So it really does take some practice to be able to notice feeling tones. You have to look for them. They don't, they're not always obvious unless they're very strong, which oftentimes they are not. So feelings, Vedana, this is an important link in the chain of dependent arising. This is in our cycle of suffering, and we notice them so we can head off craving and aversion before they get too intense. There's lots of wisdom that the Buddha talks about when it comes to pleasant and unpleasant feelings or sensations. So I wanted to just speak to some of this wisdom because I think it's important to remind ourselves why we're doing it. Since it's challenging, it can be helpful to see what the success is in doing this. One thing to remember is that when we, let's start with unpleasant sensations. When we, when we talk about unpleasant Vedana, it's important to know that we're not doing ascetic practices. So we're not looking for pain to see how much we can endure. We're not looking for pain and then bringing mindfulness to the pain to say, oh, look how much pain I can endure. I'm a great meditator. So we're, we're not looking for the pain to heighten it or create some kind of badge of honor around how much pain we can endure. We're bringing awareness to pain or unpleasant sensations, any gradation of that unpleasantness. We're bringing awareness to the sensation so we can watch how it changes. We want to understand its nature. So we're actually doing what we're actually doing is we're looking at pain so we can watch the mind react. We want to catch the mind's reaction to the unpleasant sensation. That's where we're focusing the mindfulness. So although we need to hold pain in awareness long enough to see how the mind's reacting, the goal is not just to endure it. It's to understand its nature. It's to understand where the mind is leaning once the unpleasant sensation arises in consciousness. So that's something to remember as you're doing this kind of practice. One of the things the Buddha talks about is the universality and the extensive unpleasantness that underlies the moment-to-moment -moment experience of human consciousness. So one of the things that excited and stimulated the Buddha on his path to awakening was this acute awareness that moment-to-moment -moment human beings experience a lot of discontent, a lot of unpleasantness that we're constantly pushing away from. We're constantly going through this process of craving and aversion in response to this underlying dukkha that is at the nature and heart of the experience of human consciousness. And so I just wanted to remind us, one of the easiest ways to note this is just remembering the fact that we're embodied. Remembering that being inside, not inside a body like as in soul, but being embodied, existing in an embodied form is a form of suffering. There is this constant agitation and friction 
living inside of a body. We're constantly moving around. We're constantly wearing down because we're in motion. We live in this body, whether it's inside and our joints are moving, right? We have all these chemical reactions that are happening. We're moving through the world. And this whole movement of this body that we have creates this underlying unpleasantness, this discontent that we tend to push away and jump into craving and aversion. I just wanted to list a couple of examples that I find hugely helpful for this type of practice. So if you think about it, <laughs> I always find this so amusing. Maybe it's just me. But if you think about it, what really is interesting about the human body is that the human body can't remain in any one state for very long without feeling discontent. So if you think about it, you can't just stand up in a room for hours on end with, without having some kind of pain. You can't just stand up and say, oh, I'm standing, this is pleasant, and that pleasantness is going to last. Because we have gravity, right? So standing up, sitting up, lying down, no matter what posture we're in, we're constantly shifting because there is this inherent unpleasantness in being physically embodied. So whether we're standing up and we need to move or go sit down, or whether we're sitting down and we keep switching our posture, no matter how small, or we're lying down and need to, even during sleep, say roll over or move. I mean, even if you think of like somebody in a hospital bed, right, who can't do a lot of moving, eventually the body gets injured by being in one place too long. So the human body is not designed to really be in the world and remain in a state of pleasantness for very long. Just the physical body can't can't take its own existence. So there's this constant unpleasantness in the physical form. And I always, uh, I always notice when I'm watching TV or watching movies, how often I'm moving. You know, you sit down and you're, okay, I'm going to go watch TV or I'm going to sit down and type. But then like two minutes in, you're like, well, the blanket isn't right. And I kind of want to extend my knees or I can feel this going on. So there's this constant unpleasantness that we tend not to see because we just push it away. We distract or change position. So we never catch Vedana. We don't catch the feeling. We just move and then it feels better and we you know, go on. But as meditators, we want to catch the feeling before we do the reaction. We want to catch the, the dukkha. Another obvious example is temperature. I love this time of year because meditating on the earth element, the fire element is really helpful. And again, if you think about the human being, the human body, we have a very narrow bandwidth for temperature before it becomes uncomfortable. If it's too cold, we start to shiver. If we're too hot, right, it becomes very uncomfortable. We can die very easily if it's too hot or too cold. And we might not notice it, but we're constantly, in the biggest sense, human beings are either putting on more clothes, taking off clothes, adding a fan, adding an air conditioner, opening or closing a window. We're constantly regulating our temperature because we're in a constant state of discontent. There's this, there's this rarely this constant experience of the human body feeling okay as itself in the world. So that's another example of just this background radiation of dukkha that we don't notice so much because we change so quickly to overcompensate or not overcompensate, but compensate for the dukkha. Another example, this is one of my favorite examples. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Analio. And he talks about when we get hungry, we crave food. And when we need to go to the bathroom, we crave a place to go to the bathroom. 
And he says, we rarely ever acknowledge the fact that we do those two actions quite frequently during any given day, right? In fact, unless there's something medically going on, this is something we have to do as human beings, right? We take stuff in, stuff comes out. But what he points out is we rarely look at those experiences as dukkha. When we're hungry, we fantasize about food and that fantasy of the food is very enjoyable and then we have the food and that's enjoyable. What we don't do is notice that hunger is uncomfortable. That feeding is a way of eliminating suffering, the suffering of hunger. And he also says that going to the bathroom is another thing that we don't think of. It is an act of relieving pain because we have to do that as a human being. We're either taking and consuming or things are coming out. And in both of those cases, it is because of a background dukkha that we're not aware of. We just seek the pleasure of relief in either circumstance, but we don't see it as suffering. And this is how, this is how he puts it. He says, restaurants and restrooms are, for, are facilities for pain relief. <laughs> restaurants and restrooms are facilities for pain relief. And he says, as a Buddhist, you should notice the fact that you are engaging in these activities to relieve dukkha. <laughs> so this is this background suffering that we don't really pay attention to. And so Bhikkhu and Alio always says that we're not eating, we're relieving hunger, right? That's what we're doing. We're relieving hunger, the pain of hunger. So those are just some examples of why unpleasant sensations are so important for us to become intimate with and vulnerable with and honest about because they happen so quickly and most of the time, as soon as the unpleasant sensation arises, we're like, nope, I'm just going to figure out a way of ending that uncomfortableness and we just kind of move on. So as meditators, it's our job to catch the mind in the act, to catch the mind in the act of, oh, look, disliking is arising and I'm about to do something in reaction to it. So we want to hold that moment in awareness. Pleasant sensations are similar. <laughs> when we're experiencing pleasure, we're rarely looking at, it, looking at it as a form of pain. Right? We're not programmed to do that. So when pleasant sensations arise and we have an experience of liking, like, oh, this is really nice. Unless we're a meditator, we're not going to take an object of pleasure and turn it into a meditation around suffering. But in the Dharma, we're asked to do just that. We're asked to watch pleasant sensations arise. And then we're asked to look at them and to notice that they're unsatisfactory. That when the pleasant sensation arises, we reach out to sustain it. We want it to be solid. We want it to be permanent. There's a grasping around pleasure that is continuous with the mind. And because it's pleasurable, most of the time, we're not going to think twice about the arising of a comfortable situation. Positive feeling arises. Great. You're just going to enjoy it. You're not going to usually reflect on it unless you're intending to watch as it arises. So again, like pain, pain arises, we quickly push it away. Pleasant sensations arise and we just fall back into them and enjoy them. We don't tend to look at it as an opportunity for awakening. And unless we're intentionally looking, we're not going to be able to see it. So as I had mentioned last week, two things happen with pleasure that we need to take note of. Pleasant sensations arise. One, we want to sustain them. Look for that energy around keeping that pleasantness in consciousness. 
And two, we want to look for the interest of the heart or mind to increase the intensity of the pleasure. I want more. Can I have this at a higher level? The food is good. Can I get more of the food, right? This experience, this episode of this show is good. Can I binge watch the entire season? We want to elevate the pleasure, right? So you have to watch as pleasure arises in order to catch the craving, to catch the clinging and the grasping. But it's just not intuitive to do that unless we use intentionality. The other thing I wanted to remind us about, we can use Vedana, pleasant and unpleasant sensations in and of themselves as meditative objects. So we can learn to watch pain arise and we can watch our reaction and we can change the reaction. That's where we have autonomy and influence. Same with pleasure. We can look at pleasure and we can notice its limits. We can notice that it's not satisfying, that it's constantly changing, that it's unreliable, and that we cling to it trying to make it solid. So those things we could see independently. But it's also important to remember that Vedana is a process. So what we want to also do is look at the flow of Vedana as the object. We want to watch the mind go from pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We want to see the whole chain reaction of those sensations. Now, as I mentioned last week, Vedana is a gradation. It's subjective. Like what's neutral or pleasant for me might be unpleasant or neutral for you. Just depends. So this is a very subjective aspect of the meditation. When a sensation arises, I might find a certain level of cold in a room to be unpleasant, where you might find that cold sensation to be perfectly neutral. It's just fine. So we're always comparing and labeling the sensations based on what our heart is feeling in the moment. What does it feel like in this moment to you when the sensation arises? So what we want to do is watch the process. This is a Nietzsche, impermanence. So we're looking at the impermanent nature of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral phenomena as it arises in real time. So what we're really looking at as like transitions, we want to catch those transition points where we're feeling really good and then self-doubt arises. We're having a nice moment, we're taking a walk and the sun's out, and then all of a sudden we have some doubt about ourselves, or an angry thought arises. We want to catch that change between pleasant and unpleasant. So here's an example of how it might go. An unpleasant sensation arises because of contact at the sense doors. So the other day um, I was feeling bored. So I noticed the sensation of boredom, and so this is how my mind processed it. Boredom arose, which is kind of neutral, it's kind of unpleasant, and so I decided, oh, maybe I'll sit and read. So I was like, oh, I'm going to sit and read. So I grabbed a book, sat on the couch with my cat, and started reading. As soon as I started reading, the boredom, which is the unpleasant sensation, went away, and then the pleasantness of reading took its place. So that is a transition, okay? Here's reading, and reading is pleasant. Certain amount of time in, I noticed that I was thirsty. Unpleasant sensations. So now I want to get up and I want to make hot chocolate. Because <laughs> I like to read and, and drink hot chocolate in the, in the fall. But that's unpleasant. So what did I do? I reacted. I got up, I made hot chocolate, and then sat back down. So now we have pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant again, and then pleasant. Because now in this stream of time, my sense of reactivity and my heart-mind qualities are moving up and down. Now I'm content, now I'm not so content. 
Now I'm content again. So instead of taking each individual motion, we then take the entire experience. So I was reading for a while, and then I got tired of reading because the pleasure of reading is not permanent. It lasts for a certain period of time, and then you're like, well, I've read for whatever, I think it was like an hour or maybe an hour and a half, and then it was like, well, I'm done with that. I'm not, <laughs> not in the mood to read anymore. So then unpleasant sensations arise again. And then you can watch to see, well, what's next? What is the next craving? What is the next aversion? So in any span of your day, your moment, you can watch all of this rapid cycling between pleasant, unpleasant, neutral happening over and over again. And the practice is to actually intend throughout your day to just notice that. Notice how often you move your posture while you're sitting in a chair. Notice how often you get up to change something or to get something to make your life more comfortable in the moment. Now, with, you can't really do it unless there's intention and mindfulness. So there has to be some ardency and there has to be wakefulness to be able to do it. The more you practice doing it, the easier it is to be able to see the sensations. As we begin to take the stream of Vedana as our object of meditation, then wisdom becomes accessible. There's a lot of ways that looking at the stream of Vedana leads to wisdom. And I wanted to list a few just so you can remember all the different ways that using this as an object is helpful for the practice. So one thing we notice if we can be awake and aware to the changes in Vedana is causality. We can watch and see what conditions bring us suffering and what conditions bring us a form of satiation. We can watch and see how our reactions play a role in either easing the suffering or creating more of it. We can watch the participation in the flow of life experience. So that's one thing we can do. Another thing we can notice, as I mentioned earlier, is just how often things are unpleasant. And that's really, really helpful. That's our first noble truth. Being able to notice discontent as discontent is the first noble truth of suffering. It's being able to notice how often we're kind of like disliking, just disliking this moment, not comfortable for some reason. You know, for whatever the reason may be, this moment sucks for me right now. And just noticing how often that's the case. Because the Buddha says that moment should fuel your practice. Noticing how often reality can be uncomfortable for us is the fuel for the practice. This is our samvega, right? This is our energy of practice. This is our world weariness that we tap into. But we can't tap into it until we can train the mind to notice the unpleasantness, the unpleasant hue of moment-to-moment experience. Another aspect of this, as I mentioned earlier, is the wisdom of the mind-body connection. There are feelings in between sense contact and emotional response. So the more we can take awareness and ground it comfortably and continuously with Vedana, that allows us to see the mind-body connection. Oh, when I move like this, right? When I'm put in this situation, oh, there's a mind-body response. I watch as my mind and body work in harmony to try to make myself comfortable. The way the mind and body work together as a team helps us to understand where we can intervene. Again, where we can essentially instigate our autonomy, this free will, if you will, this uh, 
agency into the process of karma, into this process of dependent co-arising. So again, there's a lot of wisdom that can come out of just taking note of these three qualities of our mental experience. Another aspect of this, and this is a little bit more challenging, at least for me, it's a little more challenging, is being able to watch how feelings are conditioned. So most of the time, I think an easy example would be you see someone that you don't like, or you see someone who represents something that you don't like. Maybe they're carrying a political sign or wearing a hat that says something political or has a shirt that represents something that you don't, you don't like. Watching how the visual image of seeing that person translates into the unpleasant sensation and then watching how you judge that person or evaluate the person and looking at how the evaluation and the negative thoughts tend to exacerbate your experience of what you're seeing. That's an incredible avenue for self-discovery because we can change that program programming. We can actually, <laughs> we can delete the malware off the drive and upload a different reaction to the experiences. When we notice that there is an unpleasant reaction to a person or a place or a concept or a politician, whatever the, the experience would be, if we can catch the unpleasantness before we get lost in the thinking mind, in the judging mind, in the angry mind, if we can catch it before then, we might be able to put in there some skillful view. We might be able to put in some love, some kindness, some generosity of spirit. We might be able to decrease our suffering. And it's in that moment, that's where we let go of grudges, right? That's where we let go of past harms. Because past harms that we keep with us as trauma or just as current agitation are always resting on top of the Vedana. Because the experience is over. Whatever that person did or whatever that person represents, in this moment, it's, it's a new moment. So the Vedana has been conditioned by our past experience. But in this present moment, we can forgive we can move on in some way. We can decrease our agitation, our reactivity, our anger, our judgment. So it's in that moment on top of Vedana where we can let go of our past. That's a huge doorway for overcoming trauma or overcoming outdated things we just like to let go of. Mostly grudges is the way I like to see it. Mostly our grudges rest upon Vedana, outdated imagery related to the sensations. So that's a huge relief for all of us if we can practice getting in touch with the dukkha before we get that second, third, and in my case, it seems like 14 arrows that come before I can do anything about it. So look at Vedana as access to healing from your past. It's a great thing to remember when it comes to the Dharma. There's another element of Vedana that I find really interesting that I think is helpful to remember. And that is that the Buddha begins by saying that there are three hues of emotion. Uh, no, I shouldn't say emotion. Not emotion. Feelings. There are three hues of feelings. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And neutral, for most of us, is either going to be equanimous and slightly pleasant, or it's going to be a representation of boredom, and it's going to lean into the negative side. So 
neutrality kind of moves quickly between either being pleasant because you're not craving and you're kind of contented. Like maybe you just ate a meal and you're satiated but not uncomfortable. And so now it's neutral. You're not hungry. You're just, you know, you're feeling okay. And then, of course, hunger arises again and turns into craving. But so neutral is kind of pleasant and unpleasant, depending on the circumstances. So we have these three categories that we're supposed to be awake and aware to. But the Buddha further makes a distinction. He says there are worldly sensations and unworldly sensations. And they're awkward terms, but I'll give you some examples and you'll be able to see why they're significant. The Buddha says that the highest goal, as we know, is enlightenment, right? So enlightenment is our highest pleasure. That's considered to be the highest pleasure. But beneath enlightenment, when we're not awakened, there is another layer of sensation that the Buddha calls unworldly, pleasant and unpleasant. Unworldly and worldly sensations are distinguished by well, I'll give you several examples. It'll be easier to do it this way. Worldly sensations are sensations that tend to be stimulated by the sense doors. They tend to be stimulated by sensuality and, and sense contact. So those are the worldly ones. It's what usually we call like just basically sensuality. Those are worldly pleasures. But that's not the only thing that a worldly pleasure or a worldly sensation means. A worldly sensation tends to be driven by craving, aversion, and ignorance. So anytime there's craving or aversion or some element of delusion in consciousness, the feeling tone is always considered to be worldly. It's just your basic raw, coarse uh, feeling of tone. So the what makes it worldly is where it comes from, so stimulated by the sense doors, also, the fact that it's arising out of greed, hatred, or delusion, or craving, aversion, and delusion. But also, the Buddha says that worldly sensations tend to drive us to want to consume more worldly sensations. So worldly pleasure in worldly pain tends to trap us in samsara. It drives us into more craving and more aversion. So these are really the basic sensuality, the basic sensuality we experience as human beings. And so we eat some food, the food is good, but it's not satiating. So it tends to lead to eating more food or more sweets, etc. And any type of sensual experience that is not ultimately satiating is considered to be a worldly pleasure. What becomes interesting is the unworldly category that the Buddha has. So I want to give you some examples of unworldly sensations. And basically, unworldly sensations are sensations that arise from spiritual practice. They arise directly from our engagement in spiritual practice. They decrease our dependence on sensuality. They are not um, born of craving, aversion, and delusion. <laughs> they have different parents, I guess you could say. Um, they're not born of greed, hatred, and delusion. And they tend to lead us to want to practice more. They inspire us to practice more spiritual engagement. So the main difference between worldly and unworldly is where they come from 
and where they direct our attention, where they direct our heart and mind, and whether it drives us back into samsara or whether it leans us towards more spiritual practice. I'll give you some exa examples and that'll be much clearer. So unworldly pleasant sensations, right? The most common ones that are mentioned are generosity, gratitude, compassion, and the meditative experience itself of jhanas in particular. So those spiritual emotions that are wholesome, right? Cultivating a sense of feeling grateful, that's considered a spiritual or unworldly sensation. The pleasantness of giving to another human being for caring or acting compassionately, the pleasantness that can come from that experience is considered to be unworldly. You might even use, sometimes I use the word spiritual or transcendent for this term instead of unworldly, because it's a weird, you can just say spiritual emotions, right? Gratitude, compassion, the joy of mindfulness, that feeling you have in meditation where you're really present and your body kind of relaxes and you just feel content, that's considered an unworldly pleasure. It is a transcendental or spiritual emotion. So that's the first, first side of it. But then there's unworldly, unpleasant emotions, pain that's considered to be spiritual. And I find this one to be even more interesting. So the Buddha says that when we have a sense that we want to be awakened, when we have a sense inside that we want to be more compassionate and more kind and we want to grow in the Dharma, that subtle ache that drives us towards practice is considered a spiritual pain. And he says it's important because that unworldly sensation inspires more practice, right? Not being able to watch a TV show or not getting enough alcohol or let's say someone ate the last piece of cake and that is a worldly pain. That does not drive us necessarily to spiritual practice. However, when we have this ache inside that says, I really want to be awakened or I really want to be compassionate today, that's considered a spiritual emotion, an unworldly sensation or unworldly Vedana. Another one uh, the Buddha mentions is just um, the challenge of meditation practice. So you know those moments where you're like, meditation is stupid and I don't know why I do this because it's uncomfortable and I can't seem to do it right? Any of that doubt that we have as a meditator, that pain of self-doubt, like everyone can get enlightened but me, that's considered a spiritual pain because if it's directed correctly, it will increase our practice. It will allow us to go and get help with our practice and practice more and take part more in community. So any kind of displeasure related to meditation, as long as it leads to more meditation practice, is considered spiritual, a spiritual Vedana. Now, the Buddha also said that, um, so most of you know the story that when the Buddha started off, he was like a hardcore ascetic and there was pain practices where self-torture and emulation was something that the Buddha was doing. And so the Buddha admitted that even though those practices, those self-tormenting practices, those self-harm practices were, did not lead to enlightenment, he considered the pain from those practices to be unworldly because it pushed him further to try and discover how to get out of suffering. 
So he said, even though the initial pain did not get him out of suffering, it did encourage him to keep on the path. So he still labeled those as spiritual, spiritual pains, part of the spiritual practice. So basically, the reason that the Buddha makes this distinction between worldly and unworldly Vedana is to remind ourselves that we want to cultivate as much of the unworldly pleasures as possible. We want to really look at the pleasures and see that the pleasures and the pains of human experience direct us in one of three directions, either towards neutrality or out of samsara or into samsara. So we can use Vedana to watch how pleasure arises in practice. For example, next time you're doing the gratitude practice or over this holiday season when you're you give a gift to somebody or you donate something or you give, look for the pleasure tone that arises in the giving. Look for the pleasant tone when you imagine offering the gift or the love or the care for a person. That tone, that is the, the, worldly, the unworldly pleasure. That's the spiritual pleasure that the Buddha invites you to look at. Now, part of the reason that he's inviting us to really look at the unworldly Vedana is because they're very subtle. They're hard to see. And we really want to tap into them because they lead to more spiritual practice. So we want to be able to learn to see that because pain is always pre-programmed as a negative response, as an aversion, oftentimes, as we've heard, that we give up on meditation when spiritual pain arises, right? Good pain arises in our practice that leads us to more spiritual practice, but we tend to push it away because we're so used to looking at pain or unpleasantness as something bad. So the Buddha is inviting us to essentially rethink pleasure and pain on a spiritual level as practitioners, to look and say, hey, there's a couple layers of reality here. There's the worldly stuff, but then there's a spiritual dimension to our practice where we can notice pleasure and pain, but from a spiritual perspective. And the last one I'll mention uh, is just neutrality. In the spiritual realm of our experience, neutrality is equanimity. Equanimity is that balanced reaction, right? It's that acceptance of what is so. Neither craving nor pushing away, not wrapped up in delusion, little touch of compassion, little self-love, that real accepted, calm, balanced state of equanimity. That's considered unworldly, neutral sensation, a spiritual neutrality. Neutrality as a spiritual emotion encourages us to keep practicing because it's a real relief. It's a sense of pleasure. Equanimity can be pleasure. The opposite is the worldly version, which is boredom, which leads to reaction, which leads to distraction. So neutrality, when we're feeling bored, that's the signal, okay, that's worldly neutrality. That's the one that's going to lead me to turn on the TV or take the intoxicant or stimulate myself in some way. Equanimity, the neutrality of equanimity is designed for you to fall back into, to really enjoy that pleasure. And that's considered unworldly or spiritual neutrality. That is our spiritual. The other one that you get for those who've had the jhana experiences, equanimity in fourth jhana is one of the classic states of 
unworldly neutrality because in the deepest part of the fourth jhana there's no fluctuations in consciousness it's still it's just still there's no sensations um in those fluctuations and it's peaceful there's no craving no aversion but it's more pleasant than boredom it doesn't trigger some kind of escape there's just contentment and one just kind of sits in it so that's another example for those who had that experience that's what the buddha referred to it as it's considered neutrality so vedana vedana hard to see worth seeing one other thing i'll say uh, before we end here is just to remind you from what i had said last week that vedana is subtle hard to see, but worth the effort, right? It's so worth the effort to practice. And the best way to practice is literally to intend to see. And it's one of those things we forget in the Dharma that in order to see what we're supposed to be looking for, we have to start by wanting to see it. We have to say, okay, you know, today, throughout the day, I'm going to look and see if I can notice pleasure. And if you just remind yourself that that's your intention, you'll start seeing it more. It's just that the mind gets trained to be able to see it. And the more you remind yourself, okay, today I really want to notice Vedana. When am I unpleasant? When is it pleasant? When am I just content? And the more you do that, the mind will just notice it all of a sudden. Like, oh, look, pleasure's arising. And then you can work with it. You can all do this. Um, I admit that when I was first uh, taught to do this, <laughs> it was so frustrating. I couldn't see Vedana to save my life. And... I got this doubt because it was like, how do you see it? That doesn't make any sense. Seeing pleasantness arise, like that's just, I just thought it was beyond human capacity to do so, but it's not. It's actually, once you begin to get into the groove, uh, everyone in this room can do it. Just intend, look for it as you're doing your practice. Thank you for your kind attention, my friends. Week after next, I will... Um show you all the suttas where this information comes from and you can see we'll go through the suttas and explore how the buddha explains at least in the traditional uh teachings how he describes all of these different there's a gigantic sutta that i've been reading about it and it's very interesting to see how it's very it's not something you're going to find in western psychology <laughs> it's its own it's its own thing it's very cool all right my friends we're right on time. Why don't we uh, fall back into loving kindness, also considered to be an unworldly pleasure. Take a few long, slow, deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. And on our exhale, fully relax into the body, letting go of all tension and discontent. And for a minute, just rest in the spaciousness of awareness and just take note of the feeling. Is there a positive color to this moment? 
Is there a sense of neutrality or equanimity? Or is there some pleasantness? Notice the flavor of this present moment. Let's take a minute to gladden the heart. We might start from just offering some gratitude to everyone in this room joining us in practice this evening. Sangha, community. We might call to the altar of our hearts something good, something special something that's going well for us. What makes you smile these days? Bring your heart into direct contact with the energy of well-being. Noticing how this can be cultivated. Unworldly emotions come from within. And with awareness, holding that, that gentle energy of loving kindness, of gratitude, let us wish well for all beings. Wishing that all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. That all beings know true love and true kindness in this very lifetime. We can imagine this energy spreading out across the planet to all beings all plants, all animals, the earth itself. Wishing that the earth be free from suffering and from harm. And we might conclude this evening by making a final wish for all beings. In this moment, if you could wish anything for the planet and all beings upon it, what would that wish be? What kindness would you wish for all beings? May all beings be free. May all beings be free.
may you be well, my friends. Lovely to see you. See you in a couple weeks. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.